the life of a criminal defense attorney in the eastern and southern districts of New York mean a few things. First, you have to mentally prepare yourself for the fact, and this is not hyperbole, but the fact that you will lose 90% of any case you take on. If a defense attorney in the southern or eastern district ever beats the government at trial, it's like winning the lottery. So imagine this scenario. Bruce Mafia was hired by Jimmy to defend him as part of his conspiracy to commit murder trial. If he was honest, he would tell Jimmy that he has a 90% chance of losing at trial. I wonder how many defense attorneys in New York inside the federal system are honest about that fact. Next, in going to trial, you'll be bombarded by the government with legal filings that number in the thousands of pages. So if you don't have associates or paralegals who are reading all those materials, you're at a distinct disadvantage. Lastly, preparing for trial in the federal system is like going to war. I've been told by friends who work as defense lawyers that the mafia guys who have gone to trial against the United States government, they treat it as if they were preparing for a sporting event. They wake up at 6 a.m., they listen to wiretaps, and they work with their attorneys to prepare. It's all hands on deck. But in most cases, defendants are locked away and have limited access to their lawyers. So their preparation is minimal at best. This gives the government even more of an advantage. It's a game of strategy. It's not the pursuit of justice. It's a high level competition with no rules. The only rules are set by judges who for the most part are former federal prosecutors themselves. Here is an interview I did with Bruce Mafio, Jimmy's defense attorney. This is unedited and unabridged. Jimmy, what were your thoughts or interpretation of who he was and as you spent time with him um, over the course of the case, how did you, how did you be feeling about him? Well, I mean, I, I think, you know, I ended up spending a lot of time with Jim over the next couple of years. And I think initially he was like a lot of clients who have assigned counsel. Um, uh, it wasn't someone he'd gone into the market to hire, um, but uh, he had spoken about me with a number of, I guess, attorneys who had represented him in the past, and apparently they assured him that he had gotten a good draw, for lack of a better word. Um, and, you know, it's like any relationship between an attorney and a client. It takes a while to develop a a feeling of trust between the two, um, but I think we moved along fairly quickly in that regard, and I believe Jim came to trust me both professionally and, and personally as we spent more time with each other. So there were two trials. Walk me through the, the, the first trial that ends, it ends in a mistrial, correct? Yeah, it did. I mean, the first trial was, uh, I forget now how long it was, it was probably four weeks, maybe longer. Uh, it was very cooperator intensive. Uh, the bulk of the government's case was were several cooperating witnesses who had known Jim over a period of years and were testifying in exchange for 
for leniency uh, in connection with their criminal charges. Um, there was some technical testimony, but I think you know it really came down to the testimony of three witnesses, uh, all of whom were cooperating with the government. Uh, there was a lot of you know filler material with police department witnesses, but none of them had any sort of insight into how the murder had happened. So it really became cooperator intensive in a way that, not unusual in federal cases, but uh, in this case, uh, clearly you couldn't reach a conclusion as to Jim's guilt or innocence based on the anything other than the cooperator testimony. And so you get a mistrial. Did you? What were your thoughts? Did you think the government was going to try him again after that first case, or did you sort of chalk it up and think that it that was it? Well, it was a murder case, and it was a high publicity murder case because of who Jim was. And I don't think there was any doubt that the government was going to going to uh, take a second run at him. Um, there were some, you know, attempts to try and work out a resolution, but those didn't work out. And um, but I don't think there was ever any question in my mind the government was going to walk away from the case, even though they had failed to secure a conviction in the in the first trial. And why was there a mistrial in the first trial? Well, the jury wasn't able to reach a unanimous verdict, and uh, we never really received any sort of breakdown as to what the vote was. Um, there was some suggestion that. Well, that suggestion. It was clear at least one of the jurors had problems with uh, the cooperator's testimony. Whether that was just her view, or that was a view shared by the other jurors or some of the other jurors, uh, it was unclear. Uh, I don't think even the government has an answer to that to this day. Um, there's no public recording of what the breakdown was. It was just clear after almost a week of deliberations that the jury was not going to be able to reach a verdict, either guilty or not guilty, uh, unanimously. And I, you know, reading the transcripts, there's this exchange in regards to this one specific juror. Did the prosecution talk me through that? Do you remember exactly what was going on with that, where this juror made these statements? Um, you know, an outright verbal statement that all people in prison are liars and therefore cannot be believable, talking about the cooperators. Uh, that is, since this bias and prejudice thing was made, this person has refused to consider the testimonies and evidence of this case. Well, there was a note from the jury, I'm not sure, I think it was the jury four person or from a member of the jury that was passed to the, the court, and then my recollection is there was considerable discussion outside of the presence of the jury as to how to proceed. Um, my view, and I think it's reflected in the transcript, was that uh, that juror's view as to the uh, difficulty in crediting the testimony of convicted uh, criminals is not unusual. In fact, it's sort of, I think, everyone's sort of initial reaction is, well, how can you believe somebody who has a convicted criminal record and is cooperating with the government in exchange for leniency. I mean, that's the 
usual grist of cross-examination mill that these people have a motive to slant their testimony. So the fact that, that to answer your question specifically, it was brought to the court and the party's attention through a note from the jury. Uh, there was a lot of back and forth as to whether or not a specific inquiry should be made of the juror. Um, I think our position was that she needn't be questioned because that would be intruding on the jury deliberations. Um, Judge McMahon, who I think generally gave us a very fair trial, although we disagreed on a number of issues, uh, ultimately felt that she had to conduct a limited inquiry, and she did that and, and did not dismiss the juror. So the jury retired to continue to deliberate. What was the government's perception or perspective on that? Did they agree with you? No, I think the government's, I mean, it's reflected in the transcript, but I think the government's position was that the juror should be excused. Um, the argument being, I think, in my recollection service, that she had a preordained bias, and that's exactly where the discussion was held, which is because you have a difficulty believing someone with a criminal record who's cooperating doesn't mean that you have bias. It means that you're correctly taking into account people's motives to testify. Um, between trials one and trials two, does the government change their strategy? Do they put on a different case? Do they change lawyers? How, what, what was the difference? Well, there was, there was, uh, there was I think, the lead prosecutor, well, two of the lead prosecutors, one had retired from the office, uh, one of them had been promoted inside the office, and that left uh, the most junior member of the team um, as the lead prosecutor, and he was joined by a more experienced colleague for the second trial. I mean, the, the problem with a retrial generally for the defense is that the government you know, has basically got your playbook um, so they can adapt their trial strategy accordingly. Here, I don't think there was, they shortened up the case, I think, more significantly on the second trial. Uh, they called the same witnesses, the same cooperating witnesses, um, but it was a much shorter trial than the first one. Plus, it was only one defendant, the second trial, as opposed to the first trial with a second defendant who was not charged in the homicide um, had worked, excuse me, worked out a plea uh, with the government. So it was a shorter trial, one defendant, uh, more compact case. Obviously the cooperating witnesses whom I had cross-examined the first time <laughs> had a sense of what <laughs> questions to expect. So, you know, but that's normal problems with a retrial. Government has your playbook. Witnesses can figure out where you're going. So, you know, the element of surprise is somewhat lost. Did you change your strategy at all from the first trial no. to the second? No. I mean, I think the strategy, the only strategy that really worked here was to attack the, the credibility of the witnesses. And, and, and the core issue in the case was, you know, what exactly Jim had said or done in connection with the murder of Lowell Fletcher. And, and that was, you know, complicated because of a a legal ruling the judge had made in the first trial that essentially put some fairly tight restraints on 
the scope of my cross-examination as to at least one of the uh, the uh, uh, three cooperating witnesses. So my strategy, there was only one to play to play this case, and that was uh, essentially to assail, go after the credibility of the cooperating witnesses. And, you know, the first time it worked to some extent, the second time it didn't. Did I just do something? No. Um, one thing that jumped out at just me, hold me. Hold yeah. and maybe it wasn't a big deal um, in regards to juror number nine and saying that English was his second language in open court. Do you recall this happening? I don't. Okay. I mean, I'm sure I remembered it at the time. It's been a while since then. Yeah. Um, is that normal to have a jury where English is the second language? In a, in a, in a Not unusual. I mean, I think when, I mean, Judge McMahon, in federal court, the voir dire or jury selection process is much more truncated than it is in state court. The defense attorneys don't get to speak directly to the jurors. All the questions are routed through the judge. It's, uh, it's much more compact. Um, there's less of an opportunity to get a feel for the judge, feel for the jurors, but certainly any lang significant language problems would have been fleshed out during the course of voir dire. And in fact, I believe one of the standard questions is whether you can speak and understand English, or have any problems with with understanding uh, or following English. So the fact that English may not be your primary language doesn't necessarily disqualify you as long as you're conversant in English. Um, speaking about the um, the witnesses, let's start with Khalil Abdullah, mm -hmm. who took the stand first. Um, and I'm just curious more so than anything with some of this stuff. The government talks about him stealing half a million dollars. The government asks him how much... Hold on. We're in the way for that, sorry. Yeah, I mean, getting at, he talks on the stand about selling, you know, close to 200 you know, kilograms of cocaine a, a month, um, which is, to me, when you look at the drug case, these are fantastical numbers. They're, they're, they're just not proven out anywhere in, in any of this. What was your interpretation of who Khalil was, him on the stand, and what was your strategy with him? How do you feel you did in, in, in that interaction? Well, I mean, Abdullah was clearly a smart guy. I mean, he was not, uh, you know, he may not have been, you know, schooled uh, in a traditional sense, but he was clearly an intelligent person, a very calculating person, um, and, you know, had a street cunning about him. Um, what I think I saw in both trials with Abdullah was that he was almost too clever by a half, uh, a bit of a wise ass, um, and I think that that was something I was able to work with, um, you know, effectively in both. Uh, Abdullah, whatever his central role he played in the drug case, where he had a much more uh, pivotal role, his testimony, actual testimony on the murder case was somewhat peripheral. Basically, came down to some one-off conversations that he claimed to have had with Jim before and 
after the homicide. But, uh, you know, so uh, to, to answer your question specifically, I, I think, I mean, I can't speak for how the jury viewed him, but I, I think Abdullah himself uh, would have been insufficient to convict Jim of the homicide because of his somewhat peripheral role in the, the events. Two, two things with Khalil that, that you pointed out and I, I thought were interesting is he goes into his proffer sessions and in, in the initial proffer sessions he lies to the government. Normal standard operating procedure or, or was that something that in these cases happens all the time? Well, I don't know if it happens all the time. I mean, I think in his case, uh, it happened uh, certainly initially. Uh, and I, I think what it really came, what it reflected more than anything else was just how calculating Abdullah was. I mean, if he could have gotten away with the first story, he would have, he would have gone with that. And when he hit a brick wall on that, he went in a different direction, which is... I think goes to the general calculating nature uh, of Abdullah. As far as whether it's general, I mean, look, it's not unusual for cooperating witnesses to give the story up in fits and starts. Um, the difference between Abdullah and someone who is probably less less cunning than he is that how far he tried to to push it until ultimately the government just rejected it out of hand. The other the other thing that you talk about is that he he readily admits um, that he has a knife in his possession in jail um, which is a crime that you point out in, in, in open court and so under usual circumstances isn't then agreements not supposed to be honored what was your, what was your well, I mean, I think the argument was precisely that, which is, I mean, I think the argument I made to the jury in the summation is that, you know, the standard cooperation agreements between the government and the defense is that after you sign on the dotted line, you walk a straight line, and if you veer two inches on either side of the line, all bets are off, you're facing life without uh, parole, and that's the sort of Damocles that's dangling over your head, and which is what the government typically argues is the reason that you should believe the witness's testimony. I mean, I think what it showed in Abdullah's case in sort of vivid detail is that, you know, clearly they didn't rip up his plea agreement, and in fact he was released, uh, he got a second reduction in his sentence and was home by Christmas. So, I mean, that was the argument, and he just happened to give it up by... I forget now how we came up with the fact that he had a knife. Uh, maybe it was part of the 3500 material, the witnesses' statements, or I'm not quite sure how it came well, up. Well, I, I was going to ask you that because it, it seems as if the government offers up that information and then you talk to him about it. It seems like you knew about it, the government knew you knew about it, and they talked about it first, which I also... I, I, don't, I mean, I, I think... My memory serves, it probably, I mean, the government has a general obligation to turn over witness statements, and that continues up through trial. So even though there may be interview reports uh, prepared by the FBI or the DEA in this case, um, I guess the FBI and the DEA in this case, um, 
you know, as they continue through trial and they're speaking to him, to the extent there's any statement that the defendant makes, that's something they have to disclose. So my recollection is it probably came across in some late material that we received, um, probably maybe as recently as the night before he took the stand. Um, and they obviously hadn't done anything about it. They didn't violate his agreement. Um, he was in the middle of testimony. Um, so I think that that's how I came up with it. Um, and the point was that he testified he did have a knife. That is a violation of prison regulations. And as I said, didn't make a material difference in his cooperation agreement or the sentence, to the el- sentence reduction he ultimately received. Is that sort of status quo in these cases by the government? Meaning if you're doing a mob case or you're doing one of these high profile cases and you have these witnesses that they can kind of do whatever they want and there's no... Well, there's limits. I mean, look, look, I will say this. I disagreed strongly with the government in the, you know, it was a vigorously contested trial and I think if you've read the trial transcripts you can see that this was you know, a pretty aggressively fought case on, on both sides. What I don't question is the government's good faith. I mean, they just, I, I'm not aware of any instances where they failed to disclose material that they should have disclosed. So they played it straight up as far as that's concerned. Um, you know, as far as, you know, they have a broad discretion in deciding what, uh, whether or not to tear up somebody's agreement. I mean, that's built into the language of the plea agreement. Um, so, you know, is it unusual? I mean, I've seen and cross-examined people who've, you know, gotten away with worse, and I've seen and cross-examined witnesses who've had their agreements violated for less serious behavior than that. So, you know, there's no hard and fast rule as to... The point is that the... And, and this really is the point that I think I tried to make to the jury, which is that the language of these agreements gives the government singular discretion whether or not to determine that the person's lived up to his or her obligations of the agreement. And for people like uh, like Abdullah, who are very smart, uh, intuitive people, they know that the audience that they're playing to are the prosecutors. That's their judge and jury. Um, The sentencing judge for sure, but the sentencing judge in Abdullah's case was not Judge McMahon. It was another federal district judge in in Brooklyn. Um, So they knew, Abdullah certainly knew, that the person who had the most immediate control over his fortune, his liberty, were the prosecutors in the courtroom and their colleagues in the Eastern District.